In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, on God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from the Psalm of David, uh, Psalm number 2. This psalm tells us who would appear as adversaries to Christ, who will oppose him, who will oppose him, who will antagonize him. And like many psalms, the theme of psalm number two is emphasized in the final verse. So the final verse in that psalm explains to us the purpose or the theme or the lesson that we learn from this psalm. So, in summary, you have two choices. Either we can disobey God, oppose Him and perish, or you can surrender to Him and be blessed. Psalm number one, the verse, first verse starts by the word blessed. Psalm number two, the last verse start by the word blessed. The last verse start by the word blessed. Uh, this psalm actually has a prophetic meaning and historical meaning. This psalm speaks about David. That is the historical meaning of the psalm. But also, it speaks about our Lord Jesus Christ in a prophetic way, as we will explain. So the time of David's reign and its warlike events may have suggested the imagery of this psalm. So David, because he had many opponents and he is the anointed of God, anointed as king of Israel, so these words uh, suggested the imagery of the sun. Uh, but the described scenes and the subject presented can only find a full fulfillment in the history and character of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are some verses cannot be applied to David. Some, some verses are only for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you cannot apply them. Yes, some verses you can apply them to David or to the Lord Jesus. But there are some verses exclusively prophetic prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm itself does not identify its author. But we know from the book of Acts, chapter 4, 25 to 26, when they quoted this psalm, they attributed to David, Peter attributed to David. So clearly this psalm is written by David and also in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, identify its number. This psalm is one of the most frequently quoted in the New Testament. The apostles, you will find it repeated several times in the book of Acts where it applied to our Lord Jesus Christ, the King and the great son of David, and also 
the anointed of God. You know the word anointed, Messiah, Messiah, chrismated one, all these are similar words. Messiah is in Messiah, and Mamsuh, anointed, chrismated. So in this psalm actually, there is reference to the anointed one. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 13 and in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 5. Both the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition consider Psalm 2 as messianic. Messianic means prophecy about the Messiah. That's the word messianic means. The outline of this psalm, it, it is 12 verses. And we pray it every morning in the first hour of the Agbaya. From verse 1 to 3, the plot of the nations against God's anointed. In historical meaning, against David. But in the prophetic meaning, against the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was anointed on the day of his baptism, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Jesus was anointed to be our high priest, our king, and our prophet. David was anointed as a king. Samuel the prophet anointed him as a king. Verse 4 and 5, God's punishment to those who are opponent to him. Verse 6 to 9, Jesus is the king, the son of God. And these verses exclusively about the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot apply them to David. Then the conclusion from verse 10 to 12, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be blessed, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's start from verse 1. First one, start with a question. Wondering question. He, he is wondering why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So we have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of many against God, the Father, and His Son, against the Lord and His Anointed. The Lord referred to God the Father and the Anointed, His Son, Jesus Christ. And the psalmist begins with a question, and he seems genuinely puzzled and perplexed. He's wondering why the nation rage. They have no reason to rage against God and they have no benefit in raging against Him. That's why their opposition against God is nothing but vain. As he said, why do the nation rage and the people plot a vain Thing. It is vain. 
Also, it has been supposed that David composed this psalm after he had taken Jerusalem from the Jebusites and made it the head of the kingdoms. You can read this story in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7 and 9. So in a historical way, the nations rage against David, the people plot a vain thing, the king of the earth themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord God and against his anointed here in historical way can be David in a prophetic way can be the Lord Jesus Christ. So we may suppose that this psalm was written to celebrate the taking of Jerusalem from the Jebusites and the overthrow of all the kings and the chief of the neighboring nations. However, we find from the use made of this psalm by the apostles, as I said in the book of Acts, like chapter 4 and chapter 13, David here symbolizes the Lord Jesus Christ. So historically, he speaks about David, but prophetically about the Lord Jesus Christ. And the psalm celebrates the victories of the gospel. Peter, in chapter 4, in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, he actually applied this verse on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, the anointed one, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. So here we can see the kings of the earth and the people raged, raged and plotted to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So here, what they did was actually determined, was in, in God's economy even before the creation of the world. So here Peter applied Psalm 2 to the Lord Jesus Christ. Their intention to stop the spread of the gospel in the world, but this was vain. They couldn't stop the spread of the gospel. They couldn't stop the salvation that the Lord planned to do uh, to save the whole world. So they plotted against the Lord Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The kings of the earth said themselves, there is always a warfare between the world and the church. Most of the time, the kings are quick to take a side, most often on the worldly side. And by the way, this applies until today. For example, all these rules that are against the Bible, like allowing same-sex marriage, allowing uh, abortion, allowing uh, transgenderism, all these things are against the Bible, against Christ, 
against God and his anointed. And who are supporting all these rules? The kings of the earth. So the rich and the plotting of the kings of the earth against Christ did not end in the first century after the crucifixion. But until now the kings of the earth are against God and are against the uh, Christ. And they were called kings of the earth because of the way of hatred and scorn to show their foolishness in opposing the God of heaven. You cannot stand against the God of heaven. You may win temporarily, but at the end you will lose. The kings can either be those mentioned in 2 Samuel uh, before David took Jerusalem from the Jebusites, 2 Samuel chapter 5, 6, verse 6 to verse 8, if we are speaking historically about David. But if we are speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are speak, uh, speaking about Herod the Great, who killed the children of Bethlehem, the other Herod, who actually was the ruler of Galilee, and tried the Lord Jesus Christ before his crucifixion, Pontius Pilate, and others who actually, before them or after them, opposed the Lord Jesus Christ. Historically, the enemies of David instigated each other in their opposition to him. They stirred each other. They counseled each other. And prophetically, the Jewish priests, elders, the council instigated false witnesses to accuse the Messiah, the Anointed One. Pilate condemned him, and the people demanded his crucifixion. That's what the devil does. The devil instigated kings and nations to persecute, imprison, torture, put to death in a variety of ways his apostles, evangelists, and the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They made all this plot against the anointed, and I explained anointed means the Messiah. Historically, David was anointed, and the Lord also is anointed on the day of his baptism. But as this signifies the anointed person, it may refer historically to David, but also secondly or prophetically to the Lord Jesus Christ. The words of the kings and rulers of the earth are to each urge one another to reject the bondage of authority. In verse 3 they said, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They feel the commandments of God. They feel the holy tradition like bond. So they want actually to break the bond. Don't tell me that the Bible is against abortion. Don't tell me that the Bible is against homosexuality. No, we need to break this bond and cast away their cords from us. 
So, they don't want to be under the authority of God. They consider this as bondage. Unfortunately, wicked men always feel God's rules and his law as chains. And they want to break these chains. This attitude is evidence of spiritual foolishness. Because God is the bondage breaker and not a source of any bondage. If the Son set you free, you will be free. The real bondage is the bondage of sin. God came to set us free from the bondage of sin. And the Lord actually, he gave a parable in Luke chapter 9. And in this parable explained exactly what the wicked people would say. As we read in Luke chapter 19 verse 14, but his citizens, the citizens of the king, the king here is our Lord Jesus Christ, hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Everyone who is actually in opposition to the teaching of the scripture is saying the same. We don't want Jesus Christ to reign over us. We want to break his bond. bond. We want to break these chains. But what is the reaction of God who is in heaven? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Because these people are on earth. They have no authority over heaven. So he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. He who sits in heaven, whose kingdom rules over all and is above all might and power, You cannot imagine, because you are king here on earth, that you can oppose God of heaven. God sits in perfect peace and assurance, sits in heaven. Shall laugh. Words spoken after the manner of men. So to to give the same, to to be understandable for us, he uses the word laugh. But we should not take it in a literal meaning as we laugh. God laughs why? Why he who sits in heaven laughs? Because he sits in heaven. Meaning what? His throne is not an earthly one. It is the throne of heaven with authority over all creation. What does heaven have to fear from earth. Heaven does not fear from earthly kings. He shall completely despise their insignificant attempts. How many people attempted to destroy the church and Christianity? They couldn't. 
God in heaven shall beat down their pride, diminish their malice, and defeat their plans. God laughs also at the vain and pointless effort of man to escape from the control of his law and throw off his dominion. All your effort will be in vain. All your efforts are pointless. It is impossible that these endeavors should succeed. Each one of these opponents shall be crushed. And the history has many examples. We heard about Diocletian, who reigned from 284 to 305. He was opponent of Christianity. And he killed many, many Christians, believed that he can destroy Christianity. He was such a determined enemy of Christian that he persecuted and killed many martyrs mercilessly and imagined in his pride and in his arrogance that he had defeated Christianity. But where is he now? He's dead and gone. He's just a footnote in the pages of history. But the fame and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is spread all over the earth. So, men will obey God either willingly or unwillingly. You cannot stand against the rules of God, he who sits in heaven. God is patient, but there is a limit to the divine patience. God will not always look on the evil in the world in silence. If he is patient, he is giving you opportunity to repent. But if they persist in their foolishness to oppose him, to oppose his economy, to oppose his rules, before destroying them, he will speak to them. He must speak and his word is power. As we read, then he shall speak to them in his wrath. He will give them warning before destroying them. And again, this is another sign of his patience and his love. So, Christ does rule. Christ does reign. He sits as a king in heaven and is acknowledged as the king of kings. In vain, was all the opposition of the Jews in vain persecution after persecution by the Gentiles. God established the church and promised the church that the gates of hate shall not prevail against it. Through the centuries, many have opposed God and opposed the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God left in heaven he does not remain silent. But in his love and in his patience, before he acts against the disobedient mankind, before destroying them into pieces, he first speaks to them. He is addressing the rebellious humanity. 
Love and mercy compel God to speak a word of warning before he acts to destroy them. So in the midst of all their plots and confidence of success, he shall speak to them in his wrath. Meaning what? Severely he will rebuke them through prophets, through messengers, through the church, the voice of truth that comes from the church, but also through dreadful judgments. God is opposed to sin, and he will express his opposition as if he felt angry. But again, anger, laughing, these are human terminology. So, this human terminology for us to understand, but for God actually, in a most calm manner, and not in emotional or passionate way that we have as human beings. He avenges justly, fairly, by the subjection of all creation to his service. So he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. He will put them in distress, in troubles, in hardships that they maybe they will reconsider their way. Maybe they will return back to him. Then from verse 6, God the Father is speaking. Yet I have set my... So as I said in verse 6, God the Father speaks. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Here the son is speaking. The Lord God the Father has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your positions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessels. So, God wants disobedient mankind to know that he has established a king. So Jesus Christ is appointed by God the Father. So the rebellious men closest in view in the psalm historically are king and rulers. And God especially wants them to know there is a king greater than they are. So the message here, God is speaking to everybody, but mainly to the kings and rulers. Because sometimes the king or the ruler, he thinks that nobody is above him. He can make any resolution. He can make any decision. He can pass any bill and nobody actually will question him. 
But no. That's why God saying here, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. So God is sending message that I appointed a king greater than you. So while they are proposing their plans, God has settled the matter. I have appointed a king. And God's will is done. A man's will agonize and fumes in vain. It, it will be vanished. God's anointed is, is appointed. Jesus Christ established kingdom, spiritual kingdom. The Lord reigned on the cross. And all the believers on the day of baptism were entered into the kingdom of Jesus. That's why we call him our Lord God, Savior, and King of us all. He's our King. So the words uttered by God, God the Father, and referring to the Anointed One, Jesus Christ, yet I have set my King on my holy hill of Zion. The Anointed One, God has set up as a King upon Zion. His holy mountain. Zion is what is a church. So here in verse 6, now he's speaking about Christ, not about David. Christ is the king in his church. Christ is set up forever as king in the heavenly Jerusalem. And the father here spoke about Jesus Set my king. He called him my king. In a singular manner. To say that his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, is not by succession from former kings. Nor by election of the people, of other kings. But my special and extraordinary destination. I have appointed him. And this king, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rule after my will. He is king over my holy hell of Zion, over my church, and over my people. Then the son is speaking in verse 7. I will declare the decree. So Jesus here, the king, is speaking. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the anointed king now speaks himself, Jesus. I will declare. I will announce it so all people may take notice of it. So here the Lord Jesus Christ is declaring a decree made by God the Father. In the beginning of all things, eternal decree, and communicated by the Father to the Son, whereby he made known the relationship between the Father and the Son, and the Son with sovereign power over the universe. So this verse explains that in the Holy Trinity, 
there is one father, God the Father, and one son, the Son of God. And the Son is begotten from the Father before all ages. So, the Lord's anointed recall what God the Father spoke to him, identifying him as the Son of the Father, and emphasizing his standing as begotten of the Father. Yes, there is no separation in time. He is begotten from the Father before all ages. There was no time the Father exists without the Son. And Jesus is not created. Jesus is begotten. I'm speaking about the Son. The Son is not created, as we say in the Creed. Begotten from the begotten, not created. So he's not created. Rather, God the Father, by the Son, He created everything that was created. So the Father created by the Son everything that's created. So the word begotten describes the relationship between two beings of the same essence same nature and same being. And by the way, verse 6 is the psalm of the Feast of Nativity. What about the word today? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What are about the today? Before I read a quote from St. Augustine, the word God is timeless, above time. So the Son, I, I don't want you to imagine that the Son is begotten from the Father at a certain moment and then it is stopped. Like how a child is born from his mother and then they are separated. No. Think about how the light comes from the Son, S-U-N, all the time. How the heat comes from the sun all the time. So the filiation, how the sun is begotten from the Father, that's a continuous process. It is a continuous process. So St. Augustine explained this, today is not a specific day. He said, although that day may also seem to be prophetically spoken of on which Jesus Christ was born according to the flesh. This is about the incarnation. But the Son before the incarnation is begotten from the Father before all ages. So in eternity there is nothing past. There is no past, future, or everything is present. There is nothing past as if it had ceased to be. Nor future as if it were not yet, but present only. Since whatever is eternal always is. Whatever is eternal always is. There is no past, there is no future. Yet as today intimates presentiality, a divine interpretation is given to that expression. Today have I begotten thee. So, 
Today, it's always, always, the Son is begotten from the Father. So, the eternal generation or filiation of the power and wisdom of God, who is the only begotten Son. So, the generation of the Son from the Father, or the filiation of the Son from the Father, is a continuous process. And the same way if we speak about the procession of the Holy Spirit. So the kingdom of the Messiah is founded upon an eternal decree of God the Father. It's not he inherited from a biological father or the people voted for him. No, it was an divine appointment by God the Father. The Lord, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your position. David did not have all the nations of the earth. David did not have to the end of the earth. So as I said from verse 6 to 9, exclusively about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Because a very small part of the nations were the inheritance of David. Therefore, the Messiah only can be spoken of in verse 8, from verse 6 to 9 actually. Before Messiah, all kings were to fall down all nations to do him service. So everybody will submit and surrender to the Son. And at the ends of the earth, for your position, there are many prophecies, like in Isaiah 52, Jeremiah 16, Micah 5, Zechariah 9, and also in the New Testament, Acts 13. So the Son of God, the anointed, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, holds the nations of the earth as his inheritance. He will rule over all nations and all judgment is committed to him. As we read in John chapter 5, verse 22, the Father will not judge anyone because he has given all judgment to the Son. So all the nations of the earth all the kings and rulers of the earth will stand before the Son to give an account to be judged by him. Uh, until now, we don't see all the nations surrendering to the Son. But at the end of the time, as we read in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it describes exciting consummation of this inheritance how all the nations will surrender to the Son. We read in Revelation 11:15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So this will be fulfilled literally at the end of the times. Verse 9, 
you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessels. So, the Son of God will have such power over the nations. They will be to him like clay pots that he can shatter with a knock from a rod of iron. So, this verse, verse 9, is a figure of the severity of the reproach that awaits the rebels. Those who are opponent to God's rule, those who are acting against his will, those who are challenging his commandments, they will be broken to pieces. Like clay pots, he will shatter with a knock from a rod of iron. This shows why it is foolish for the nations to challenge and disobey the Lord and his anointed. You can win temporarily, but at the end, God will reign and he will dash you into pieces. That's why the message in this psalm, there is no reason and no benefit to your rebellious opposition to God. You cannot stand against God who sits in heaven. So this was in part fulfilled when the Jews who persisted in unbelief were destroyed by the Roman power in year 70 AD. The temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was destroyed. Also, it was fulfilled another time in the destruction of the pagan power when Christian religion came to be established by Emperor Constantine. But it will be completely fulfilled at the end of the day. So until now there are some opposing power and principality against God, but they will be put down. So these verses, especially verse 9, cannot describe the mild rule of Christ. Many people ask why God is silent, what God is patient, why God does not avenge against all this evil. He is giving them opportunity to repent. But God will not be patient. There is limit to his patience. Those who object, they forgot that God, Christ, although he is the Prince of Peace, but he came to send a sword upon the earth, as he said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. And as the appointed judge, to, ju- to judge all the men, he takes vengeance on the wicked, while he rewards the righteous. Even St. John in the book of Revelation declares that out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule with them with a rod of iron. St. Paul in Romans said, don't take advantage of the loving kindness of God. So, 
here you can find his loving kindness, but also there is the firmness of God. His loving kindness for those who repent and submit to him. But his firmness is against those who rebel against him. So what is the conclusion? What is the message? First 10 to 12. Now therefore, that's the conclusion. Be wise. Don't be foolish. Don't stand against God. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. How to be wise? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. So a little wrath can destroy the nation. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So after the word of the warning from the Son of God, the psalmist David counsels the kings of the earth to give up their foolishness, their foolish disobedience to the Lord. He called them to surrender to God, to give him proper reverence. You cannot stand against God. Understand your true interest while you have time for repentance and submission before it is too late. Although these verses apply to every one of us, but why David addressed only the kings and the judges of the earth? Why he addressed the king and the rulers? First, because they most need this warning among all men, because they trust their power and greatness. They think it is below them to submit to him. And they can put any rule. They can legalize anything. And nobody can stand against them. That's why he's telling them, be wise, understand, be instructed. And second, because their authority and example would have great influence on their people and inferiors. So the message submit and rejoice, but rejoice with appropriate trembling. Trembling means reverence. When he said, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, reverence, mean here reverence. So God wants us to rejoice because his statutes, his commandments are joyful to our heart. Serve him with fear with the reverence that's due to him. And this is a general direction to all of us, with the reverence of his great and glorious majesty. Serve him as servants. They serve their master. If we serve God well, we will be happy. We will be joyful if we serve him with fear. Then he told them, kiss the sun. What does it mean, kiss the sun? Uh, this from a tradition so David has in mind the kiss of submission where a dignity receives a humble kiss from an inferior 
So kiss a son means submit to him, but with love. Kissing is a token of subjection and friendship. It hints at the affection God wants in relationship to him. So when we surrender to him, it's not the surrender of the slaves, but we surrender to him because we know he wants our best interest. He is here to make us happy and joyful. So we kiss him joyfully and willingly, knowing that he cares about us. As all judgment is committed to the Son, he is a judge to the whole world. So the Jews and others are exhorted to submit to him, to be reconciled to him, that they might be received into his family, the family of God, to be his bride, and be acknowledged as adopted children to God the Father, to be bride of the Anointed One and adopted children to God the Father. Be careful, because the slightest stroke of the iron rod of Christ's justice is sufficient to break in pieces a whole rebelled world. That's why he said, when his wrath is kindled, but a little, but a little. So just the slightest stroke of the iron rod of Christ is sufficient to break all the nations of the earth, all the kings of the earth, to pieces. So every sinner, not yet reconciled to God through Christ, should receive this as a most serious warning. Those who disobey God are smashed and destroyed, but those who depend on Him are blessed. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. So. All who do all who do this to submit to him are happy, blessed. Blessed means they are happy. They are safe in time, in contemporary time, and they are saved in eternity. So this great truth is stated everywhere, everywhere in the Bible. If you are opponent to God, this person will be destroyed, will perish. But if you submit to him willingly, then you will be blessed here on earth and in the life to come. To come. So, to encourage the children of men, weak and guilty and helpless, to put their trust in the Son of God. The Psalmist leaves the choice with everyone. It's your choice at the end. Perish or be blessed. It's your choice at the end. This actually concludes chapter Psalm 2. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.